This episode of Converge with my guest, Gretchen Rubin, is sponsored by WeaveWriter. For more information, check out WeaveWriter.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things, and when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work, and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. Happiness is one of those concepts that it seems everyone is interested in, but it also seems like everyone means something different by it. There's all this lore in our culture around we want to be happy or we just want those we love to find a way to happiness. Yet, how do you do it? And given all of the different paths and patterns that people are choosing to navigate life, it seems like they're all getting very different kinds of results. Well, our guest today is Gretchen Rubin, and Gretchen has spent a significant amount of time in her life as a professional and personally wrestling with that question. And she shared a lot of those ideas in the form of you know, a number of books that we'll begin to talk about, a number of expressions online through video and audio. But as I've had the chance to talk with her a little bit, I'm discovering more and more that this isn't just an interest. This is a passion that she's hoping to make real for herself but more so have it ripple into the lives of those she has influence with. I think it's the challenge of our lives is to really understand who it is that we really are and to both accept ourselves and also expect more from ourselves. I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. Gretchen Rubin, thanks for joining me on Converge. Oh, well, I'm very happy to be talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. I love that you're happy to do that. (laughs) (laughs) So Gretchen, you have a number of projects and I'm sure most of my listeners know exactly who you are and it might feel redundant to go over those things again. But will you talk a little bit about the Happiness Project, uh, the the path you've taken through Yale, your history in law, your, your work right now, and eventually I want to spend a little time around your new project, but what got you to where you're at today? Um, Well, as you mentioned, I started my career in law, and I was actually clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor when I realized that I didn't want to be a lawyer, I wanted to be a writer. And I think if I'd been honest with myself, I I had wanted to be a writer for a very long time, but I just hadn't really come to grips with that. So I had done a lot of things that a person would do to prepare to be a writer, but it wasn't until that point that I really decided You know, I would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. And this is the point to make that jump. So I went to law school and was a lawyer and did all that, which was a great experience. I don't regret it. But then I turned to writing and I wrote several books. And then The Happiness Project is definitely the book that uh, I think most people are familiar with. And I decided that I would spend a year test driving, you know, ancient philosophy, contemporary science, lessons from popular culture about how to be happier. You know, I realized I had this epiphany that, you know, what I wanted from life was to be happy, but I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happy or how I could be happier. So I decided I would do a happiness project and really put all these ideas to the test and say, you know, if I really did these things, would I make myself happier? Can you make yourself happier? And after I did that, um, 
then I had this realization that so many of the elements of the happy life converge in the idea of home. And I really wanted to push these ideas much deeper. So that was my book, Happier at Home, because the Happiness Project is sort of this broad framework for understanding how to think about happiness and sort of how to tackle it generally. And then with home, I really went into the things like um, that, you know, that are really under your own roof, because if you're, you know, if you're not happy at home, it's hard to be happy. And now uh, I've turned to the issue of habits, because in thinking about happiness and in talking to people about happiness, I realize that so often when there's a big challenge or a big success, often it has to do with making or breaking a significant habit or the inability to make or break a significant habit. And so I realized, you know, if I really, if I want to understand happiness and how people build happy lives and and how people change, I really need to come to grips with habits, um, which is so fascinating. Every book that I write, I think this is it. I'm never going to have it this good again. No book will ever be as interesting as the book that I'm working on right now. And then the next book comes along and I'm like, no, this is the most interesting book. So that's how I just, I, I just am I'm obsessed with habits. Well, uh, clearly your obsession is connecting with a lot of folks is resonating. I mean, just looking at the statistics you have, what is it? 88,000 plus on Twitter, 110,000 on Facebook, 370 odd thousand on LinkedIn. One, oh, one, you know, I'm, I'm almost up to a million on LinkedIn. Well, now. forgive me. I'm going off Crazy. of old stats. You, you, you need to update your self-promotion stats on your site then because <laughs> that's what I'm looking at. But it's ridiculous. Like 1.8 million on YouTube. Like it's, you have a lot of people who are resonating with your message and this curiosity. And, and, and by the way, I, I'm so pleased that you are looking at this, not as a uh, superficial, how can you kind of tickle the top of your skin kind of moment, but it seems like you're doing this more of a, a deeper thoughtful approach more like if, if if tickling the skin is you know one version of massage and like those crazy buff people who get yeah. massage where they with their elbows and you know really hurt you you know yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you're the latter and and in that your approach around you know is it even possible to have a happy life if circumstances don't serve you and or you're not getting what your preference is in life can you can you relate with the world in a way that would get you something new or different or better. And what is, you know, your responsibility? What is the responsibility of how you're relating with others? There's so much that is going into that. And, and first of all, I just want to, again, I'm affirming you that I, I like that you're, you're thoughtful to consider all of the, the conversation. And then, and I also like that it's progressive. It seems like you have this body of work around, you're a happiness expert, like you're, you're learning uh, and thinking at a, at a level that most people aren't willing to go around the nature of happiness or classical, like eudaimonia, this kind of real concrete, rich, the good life. And, and yet you're also playing with the things that interact with that end that people want. Uh, so first of all, am I reading you right? <laughs> and, and then second, what are those characteristics? Like you mentioned habit, you mentioned home as a context. Uh, what are some of the discoveries you've learned about how happiness works? Well, if you had, if you had to say like, you know, people often say, like, well, what is the secret to happiness? Like, if you had to pick one thing. And I think you can answer that question different ways depending on the framework that you use to approach the question. But certainly one answer, and maybe the best answer, is relationships. You know, ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree 
that to be happy, we have to have strong relationships with other people. We have to feel like we belong. We have to be able to confide. We have to have enduring, intimate relationships. We need to be able to get support. And just as important, interestingly, for happiness, we need to be able to give support. And so anytime you're thinking about like how to spend your time, energy, or money, something that deepens or widens your relationships is good. So like I'm going to my college reunion and it's like, should I go to my college reunion? Probably that's going to make me happy because it's going to strengthen my relationships with other people. It's going to reignite relationships with people. Um, you know, if you're thinking about uh, how to spend your money, you know, are you better off throwing a party or, you know, buying a new pair of boots? Probably throwing a party is going to make you happier. But I think there's another way to answer the question, what is the key to happiness? And I think that's self-knowledge because we can build a happy life only on the foundation of our own nature, our own interests, our own values. And it's so easy to be distracted in everyday life by what you wish were true, what you think ought to be true, or what other people expect from you. And I mean, I certainly have felt this myself, you know, um, and this need to really come to grips with what is true about you and to put that into play in your life just turns out to be super important. And the more I study happiness and habits as well, it's just as important for habits. You know, I have these 12 personal commandments and the first personal commandment and the most important is to be Gretchen. And you think, well, it's like, it's so easy to know yourself. You just hang out with yourself all day long, but it's really, I think it's the challenge of our lives is to really understand who it is that we really are and to both accept ourselves and also expect more from ourselves, which is one of the great tensions within happiness, which is how do you do both of those things in service of a happy life? You know, so much of what I'm hearing you describe connects to identity, uh, you know, yes. whether it's self-knowledge or yes. those kinds of things. And, and people, especially in the era that we're living in now, they identify with so many aspects of their lives. So people could have like an ethnic identity or a sexual orientation as an identity or a group that they're a part of or a family or any other thing. Uh, you know, you mentioned you're a lawyer, like you're part of a guild in that yep. context. Sandra Day O'Connor is part of a special, really special crew of people. When you think of identity and, and maybe Justice O'Connor is a good example, like is, is her, when you say self-knowledge, you don't mean like she's a judge, right? Like you mean something deeper than that. Or do you like, how, how, how do people find out what is the self? Like, how do you, uh, yeah, and, even, well, and that's a painful question to ask. I, you know, my background is in philosophy, like, and I, I know yeah. I'm asking an impossible question, but help yeah. us, help us wrap our mind around that a little bit better. But you're so right. It's so complex. Um, well, just one thing I would, I would note in passing, uh, cause I think you raised a very interesting thing, which is, which is that some people have multiple identities. And in fact, it's good to have multiple identities because then if something bad happens in one of your identities, you can switch. Other, <laughs> your other identities are strong. So maybe you get fired from work, but you're the head of the PTA. And you're so right. people are like, you're awesome. You're great. At, you're great at what you do. And so you're like, well, you know, something went wrong, but other things are going right. And so when you have multiple identities that it, it's sort of like no one piece is so important that it can destabilize you. So I think that's, that's sort of interesting to note. And it's interesting that you point to identity because in my, in my study of habits for my habits book, it took me a really, really, really long time to understand the critical nature of identity. It sounds like you would have gotten there right away, but it really eluded me for a long time. Because what I finally realized is that when people really struggle with a habit that they can't make, often 
really when you push, push, push to understand what's going on, it's because there's some issue of identity at play. For instance, a friend of mine wanted to drink less. She didn't want to give up drinking. She didn't have like an alcoholism problem. She didn't want to give it up. Um, but she felt like, you know, she was maybe having a little bit too much and she'd feel sharper and, and, and more energetic and kind of just better if she, if she dialed it back, but, you know, sort of night after night, she'd, she'd start with one glass, then she'd have two glasses or whatever. So she wanted to drink less, um, which turns out to be something that many people want to do or habit that many people want to adopt. But, but when she was telling me about it, she would say things like, well, I'm an Italian. You know, I, I love good food and wine or, you know, or, I, you know, I'm the fun one. Mm-hmm. And and I realized, like, that part of what was stopping her was this idea of, like, I'm Italian. I'm the fun one. I love good food and wine. And, like, she really had to think through, like, how can I be Italian? How can I respect my love for a good food and wine? How can I, you know, embrace my, you know, life of the party self and yet make this change that I want to make? Or, um or like somebody posted on my blog, like I was a baker, but I realized I had to let go of that because it wasn't good for me to like be eating like bread and candy and sweets all the time. Or, you know, but people like identify as workaholics or they identify as perfectionists or they identify as Southerners or, you know, whatever it might be. Sometimes these things can be great and helpful. And sometimes they can lock us into things that aren't that aren't good. One of the things that I try to do uh, in the Habits book is to find a lot of, you know, fairly superficial, blunt ways, not deep, deep, deep questions um, of identity, but more like things like, are you a night person or a morning person? That turns out to be really important for habit formation. A friend of mine who was like a confirmed night person looked me straight in the eye and said, I'm going to start getting up early to, to exercise. And I was just like, you are not like, you, you, what? I know you, you know, don't you know yourself? There's no way you can barely get up as it is. And I talked to her about it for a little while. And she's like, you know what? It's never worked for me to do that. Like, why am I going to say I'm going to do that? never works. So do something that's going to work for me as a night person. And then there's all, and so I try to find a lot of distinctions. Like some people love abundance and some people love simplicity. And that really shapes the kind of preferences that you have. Like a, an abundance lover might like to go to a gym where there's lots of options and a simplicity lover, which is like me, I like to go to a gym where all you do is one thing you do that and then you're done and then you're gone. Like I like the simplicity and the clarity of that. But for somebody who loves abundance, they would feel very frustrated and and just bored with that. A funny distinction is, are you a finisher or an opener? Some people love to finish. Some people love to open. And that's opening things like jars of mustard or like papers that they're going to submit to a law journal or whether you're a marathoner or a sprinter. Some people like to do steady work well in advance. Some people like to crash at the end. They love the adrenaline of the finish line. You know, because with all these things, it's not that there's a right way or a wrong way, either for habits or happiness, but it's a question of setting up your life to reflect yourself because you're going to struggle if you're trying to go against just your natural propensities. So the more you can acknowledge, even recognize what's true about yourself, the more you're able to make your life reflect what's important to you. So for instance, like with my happiness project, one thing that I don't talk about at all is adventure or travel. These are not important to me. Um, that's just me. I wish they were. I kind of wish I were. That's the sadness of self-knowledge. So it's like, I wish that I loved to travel. I wish that I loved crazy adventures, but I don't. But for some people, that might be a central element of a happiness project is to incorporate more, more travel and adventure into their lives. So again, it's just knowing yourself. Wow. As you were talking, a number of things were sparking my mind. One, 
was when you're talking about, for example, openers and clo <laughs> and finishers or. Yeah. Uh, Which are you? Uh, I'm definitely an opener. Uh, uh, you are. Well, although it's funny, like you sounded like you sound like an opener. I think. <laughs> a lot of balls in the air. Well, a lot of balls in the air for sure, but the uh, and probably to a fault. But the the challenge I have, uh, or I have many, many challenges, Gretchen. But um, <laughs> one is uh, when I think of like the Strengths Finder test, for example, that yeah. uh, the Gallup people put out. One of my top five is activator, which is starter, and the other one is achiever, which is finisher. So I can't wait to get started. And I can't wait to be done. So, oh, that's great. so, so that's well, great. I, I feel conflicted a lot though. So, and it's funny that my perennial pursuit is around process and that middle space has the, for me, the greatest benefit. And actually it's a great segue to the question, which is, it seems like these things on some level are skills. And when you say things like, you know, setting up your life to reflect yourself or to reflect what's important to you, I find that a lot of what's important to me are things that make me feel good. Like when I'm, when I feel strong, for example, and, and oftentimes I feel strong around things that I'm good at uh, mm -hmm. when I'm exercising those skills. And when I think about skills, if you can hang with my little train here, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm thoughtful to guys like uh, Cal Newport and his book. So could they can't ignore you. Are you familiar with, with that, yes. that piece? Okay. So when, when Cal writes about, this kind of, it's really, a, it's, his is a happiness book too. Like how could you have happiness in your life? And his, he makes this juxtaposition on the one hand, you pursue your passions and the other, do you pursue, and he makes it pretty mutually exclusive, but the skill, this craftsman mindset is I think he, what he calls it. And again, going full circle, when you describe skills like being an opener or being a finisher, or maybe they're not skills and I need to get things clarified here is is the recognition of the skills the things that I could be good at or maybe I could become good at like I wonder for you Gretchen if if you related with adventuring in a new way and you found a skill like some new angle on adventuring and it got reinterpreted for you might you find happiness in that new found habit well I mean part of it is I think you can you can play with definitions so you know I, I think it was who said it anyway, uh, some famous novelist said something like all true adventure happens within. So even a quiet life can be an adventurous life. So, I mean, in a way I'm an adventurer, you know, in my mind. So I feel like I'm lying in bed reading a novel and that's my adventure. So is that an adventure? In a sense it is. So yeah, we can, you can redefine it. You know, and one of the things I think, again, is one of the tensions, which is how much do you push against your nature and and, and that that broadens you and it's exciting and you get growth? And how much do you and, and when do you not do that? When do you respect the natural limitations of your nature? And I think this is one of the big questions within happiness, because I think there are some times when it is appropriate to like and you will get happiness, you will get a sense of of growth, which is so key to happiness, because you're pushing yourself to do something that's uncomfortable or anxiety producing. And that's, uh, that's absolutely true. But I do think there are things where, you know, it's like music. I don't particularly like music. Like I like a song here and there, but I don't listen to music. Um, if I walk into a room where music is playing, I will probably want to turn it off. I never go to concerts. I just don't really relate to music. And so many people have said to me, Gretchen, give me a half an hour with you and I'll, I'll make you love music. And I used to think, oh, if I would study it, if I would read some books, if I would buy some CDs, if I would take a class, I would love music. And then finally, I'm like, you know what? I got a lot of things that I love without trying. And I don't have enough time for those. So instead of trying to constantly 
push myself in this direction. Maybe I just need to let go of the fantasy of myself as the person who can learn to love chess and learn to love skiing and learn to love cooking and learn to love shopping and learn to do everything. But on the other hand, this is the tension. Sometimes you have to expect more from yourself. Sometimes you have to push yourself. And that's where happiness lies. And I know many people have said, like, I didn't like it, but I stuck with it. And now I love it. So it's for each person and in each situation, you have to figure out what is the true, what's the true shape of your nature? Like for me, like I, I'm a very fearful driver. And in Happier at Home, I write about how I had to say to myself, should I just accept that, it, that an aspect of my personality is that I'm a fearful driver? Or should I say, I really can expect myself to deal with this. And I thought, you know what? This is something I can expect myself to deal with. I know how to drive. I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. I've had a driver's license since I was 16 years old. Like, hmm. get, you know, deal with it. And so I did, and I'm very happy that I did, even though I still hate driving. So sometimes it's appropriate, but then sometimes I think, I, I think this idea of infinite potential can be draining. Um, and when you let go of some of these ideas of everything that you should be, then you have more time for what you are. And certainly the closer, you know, over time, my life has come to reflect more and more closely, like what I think is really true about me and less of my fantasy of who I wanted to be or who I think other people want me to be. And it's definitely made me happier. So much of what you're describing really is that, isn't it? It's this idealized self versus actual self debate, which again, comes back to this identity thing. Yes. And, yeah. and it strikes me, too, that in your own progression of thought, you've landed around context. And what I, what I mean by that is, you know, in pursuit of happiness, if that's content, you're finding yourself talking about the context for that happiness. So habit or home. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that the right way to think of it or or not? Well, there's a lot of ways to think about it. But, but uh, you know, I kind of like the Benjamin Franklin approach. Like, it's very concrete. I really in my own view and the way I approach it, and this is definitely not what everybody would do, but it just happens to be my approach, is the things that we can control are our actions and our surroundings. Like I never think about things like being optimistic because that's in your head. I'm like, I don't even, am I optimistic? Am I not optimistic? I don't know. How would I change it? It all seems very abstract and kind of intangible to me. But something like getting enough sleep, that I can, you know, that I can work on. That's very specific. So, you know, I, I really work on the inside by starting from the outside. So I think this word context is absolutely true. And all, you know, and, and, and so much of our identity, of who we are, of our own experience of ourselves is shaped by the people around us and by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so, you know, I, I just think that's easier for most people to work on is the things that are very concrete and very explicit, you, you know, and sometimes you can kind of phrase things either in an explicit way or a non-explicit way. So like one might be forge a close, closer relationship with my clients. And another one is call a client every day, call a client every day is like, you know, if you've done it, you can check it off the list. It's very specific what you're asking of yourself when it's like cultivate closer relationships with your clients. It's like, what does that mean exactly? It's not like it's not a good idea, but it's just, it's too amorphous or like be more mindful. I mean, so many people say like, oh, I want to be more mindful. Okay. But how, like, what does that look like to me? Like being very concrete about what will follow the action that will put that into play in the world is helpful in making sure that 
that you actually are working towards this change that you want to see, because it's just, it's hard to do these things. Um, so, you know, like my idea is make it as easy as possible by making it as explicit as possible. So I, I love your bias towards, you know, what's real in the physical universe and that concrete. In fact, in fact, if you're saying that, I was thinking you're going to put a lot of consultants out of business uh, because, <laughs> <laughs> because there's a lot of energy spent around, yeah, these abstractions of reality as opposed to reality. And, and actually, I'd like to turn a corner on that note. This podcast is called Converge, the Business of Creativity, and it's targeting people who are living in these concentric circles of making stuff and monetizing the stuff they make. Uh, in some way or another. could be services, could be products, could be a whole bunch of different things. But they're creating. And for most, I would argue, they're artistically driven. Um, they're not entrepreneurs who are trying to do things more as an adjective creatively. They're, 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 they're making cool things. And as you're describing this, with artists who might have a tendency to live in the clouds with more kind of esoteric ideas as opposed to on-the-ground concreteness, when you are consulting or talking with folks or giving speeches at World Domination Summit or wherever you're at this week. What do you tell people around connecting the dots between their creative life, their work life, and happiness? That is a very good, big question. I mean, and again, I think it comes down to self-knowledge. Now, before I started my happiness book and my habits book, I would have said things like, do the most important thing first thing in the morning or make a list, or do work every day. But what I found is that's how I work best. And there's a lot of people like me, but it turns out there's a lot of people who are not like that. And um, there's this fascinating book by a guy named Mason Curry called Daily Rituals. And it is just- I love just, that book. I love yeah, that book. It's 161 artists, scientists, philosophers, choreographers, musicians, everything. And it just tells you what their habits were. And for me, the lesson of that book was the secret is not in getting up early or staying up late or drinking coffee or drinking bourbon or living <laughs> chaos or living simplicity. It's knowing what works for you and making sure that you get the situation that you need to be at your creative potential. And the people in this were all people who were very good at creating and sometimes very much to the inconvenience of the people around them at making sure they had the circumstances that allowed them to thrive. And these were vastly different from each other but they all adhered to whatever worked for them. And so, you know, I think there's this, this impulse, like if only I could find this, this perfect answer, or like if I could just live the way Steve Jobs lived, or if I could live the way Leonardo da Vinci lived, or if I could live the way Benjamin Franklin lived, then it, that would be, that would work. But the thing is it works for them. Whatever worked for them worked for them. And you have to say, well, what's going to work for me? When have I succeeded best in the past? When I've worked the best, when things have come most easily, when I've been most productive, um, when I felt most connected to my creativity, well, you know, were there particular foods or drinks that I needed? I mean, come on, like if you need your coffee, you need your coffee. Am I, am I better in the morning or at night? Am I better when I have like a lot going on? Am I an opener that like, needs a lot of projects or do I better do better focusing on one project? Do I need a lot of collaboration or do I like to work by myself? Do I like to work in a place that's very plain or do I like to work in a place that's full of stuff? I mean, I went to a tech company and they had just had this like decorate your 
it was a competition to decorate your your cubicle pod. So all these teams had decorated their cubicles, and there was stuff everywhere. It was hanging from the ceiling, like it was ever. And it was so fun to walk around and look at it. Like this one was decorated like undersea, and this one was decorated like you know whatever. And I thought I could never work here. Mm-mm. This is just too much stuff. Like I need, I need a different kind of environment. So, but that's just me. So I mean, I think that. Um, so I think often you know it's it's looking at previous patterns or when do you feel most like you're doing the your thing the best and thinking like well how can i get more of that you know like some people really need to work in a social environment like there need to be people around even if they're not talking to you even if you don't even know them so like maybe you go to a coffee shop maybe you do have a co-working space and then other people you know need just the opposite it's funny because I work at this little library that's right by my apartment and there's a big workroom where you can work at long tables. And then there are these individual tiny rooms where you can actually shut the door and be by yourself. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me is some people like all they do is like contrive to get on the line, you know, in line to get those little rooms. Like it's super important to them to be in that little room. I would never choose to work in a little room. I like being in a place where everyone's quiet, but there are other people around. There's sort of a sense of industry. So it's like, it's not, there's no right or wrong way. There's no magic answer. It's like, what works for you? But you have to figure that out. And and that can be challenging sometimes. It may not be clear right away um, what those circumstances are. And, and how do you find that? I mean, is it just trial and error? Is, is there... I think- I think it's trial and error. I think it's looking at the past. Like most people have had like periods where they did, they worked really well, uh, periods when they worked really badly. Like, and there's weird patterns. Like I had a friend who was wildly productive whenever she was breaking up with a boyfriend. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I mean, I don't know what I you would think you'd be very distracted, but for somehow for her, this was like, you know, I, you can't spend your life breaking up with your boyfriend. Um, so I don't know what that tells her, but you know, uh, like if you did really well in college, if you did really well, you know, at a particular job, like a friend of mine who's a writer was saying she was going to quit her job as a journalist and write a book. And she was saying, well, when I wrote my last book, I, I did my best work when I worked at this co I went to a co-working space that a friend of mine had. It was right near my gym. So I would ride my bike there. I would work when I got restless. I would work out at the gym, which was just like a block away. There was like great restaurants and great like p- pickup food places. Then I'd go back to this co-working space and I'd ride my bike home, like it, this whole thing. And I was like, well, you got to recreate that somehow. Like that worked, whatever it was, it was like, you, you know, you had the social piece because you were with a friend and you were in co-working. You had the gym nearby, so you got your exercise. You had food. That's important to you. Some people, that's not important. To her, it was important. You know, so don't think that you're going to sit home alone in your apartment in New Jersey and it's going to work for you. Maybe it will. But if you feel like it's not working for you, think about how you might replicate circumstances that you felt really kind of worked for you before. So, um, and then there's just, like you say, experiment, trial and error. If, you know, if this doesn't work that, you know, work at a def- couple of different places, work different times of day and really pay attention. A lot of times we just don't pay attention. You don't notice, wow, I'm, I, you know, I'm really, I have all my best ideas and I'm super energetic, like after 11 PM. Cause a lot of times this is interesting. A lot of times we assume that whatever is true for us is what is universally true. And people will say things like, well, everybody gets their best ideas after 11. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, they don't. That's just not true. Or, you know, or somebody said to me, well, you know, everybody likes the chance to get up and perform in front of a crowd. <laughs> it's like, no, they don't. You know, fear of fear of public speaking outranks fear of death. 
among Americans. They are literally more afraid of public speaking than of dying. And But to him, he was like, everybody loves to perform. So, you know, part of it is really noticing what's true for you, not assuming that everybody, everybody should make a to-do list. Everybody should work steadily. Everybody should, you know... Uh, work with a team. Everybody needs to, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Um, what's true for you? So, so are you saying there's a difference between self-awareness and narcissism? That's what I'm hearing you say. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's a joke. Okay. So, so I was in a conversation uh, with a writer friend of mine and, and this relates to what you just shared. And he was telling me that uh, he's, he's actually a, a teacher at USC on writing. He has his own writing career and he was commenting on that an extended season in his life where he would smoke like several packs of cigarettes a day. Yeah. Uh, and into your language, like it worked, like he was cranking. He got a lot of content done. Of course, his wife didn't want to sleep with him because he smelled like a chimney. He, he drank too much. He had horrible kind of social patterns. And right. he realized that in one area of life, he was getting tremendous benefit, but in other areas of life, his commitments, they were suffering. And he had, he try, had to retrain and he actually went through this extended period of time where he kind of traded in uh, one set of habits for another set of habits, but did it in a way that he was still going, for, he was clear on what the effect of his new habits needed to be. Talk a little bit about that dynamic. Like, is that common? Is that possible for most people? Is he an anomaly? How can people reinvent bad habits, but get a good result? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, smoking is, is, uh, that is a bit like many writers say, like, I have to smoke because I can't write otherwise. That's a very, so in, in my habits, I talk about the different strategies they can, you can use And one strategy for how formation is pairing the two things always go together. So like, if you want to watch the real housewives, you have to be on the treadmill. It's not a reward. It's not a treat. <laughs> it's like, if you're watching Real Housewives, you're on the treadmill. It doesn't happen otherwise. And sometimes these pairings can be can be bad. You have to be very careful about pairings. For, for instance, I know somebody who who was so so identified going to movies with eating candy that when she wanted to eat um, eat better, she had to stop going to movies and theater. She simply could not go to a movie theater and eat candy. Now, for me, that that pair had never formed, so I didn't even think about it. But you know, but for her, it had locked in. So a smoking and writing pairing is a very bad pairing. Smoking with anything is a very bad pairing, obviously. Um, and it takes a lot of overcoming it. And, and, and are there good substitutes? like For like, smoking, you know, smoking stands on its own. Huh. No one has come up with a great, you know, the, the, the way to not smoke is never to start because it is hard to give it up. I think most people who quit smoking will point to that as one of the central victories of their lives um to, to quit smoking um and then and but again i think exactly what you said sometimes we have we have two values that are incompatible and we have to pick one hmm. and certainly not smoking is very very important and so you might have to say like i'm gonna you know i might go through this period where i'm not as productive as i would otherwise be because i'm going to be very distracted by this I'm going to have to put a lot of energy into the idea of not smoking and building in these new habits. Now, one interesting thing about smoking and, and habit change generally is that a huge benefit, like if you need a jump start, if you're like, oh, this is this one's going to be tough. A great thing to do is to is if you do it at the time of a move, when you move, all of your previous habits are so disrupted that it's a really excellent time to either start a new good habit or to break an old bad habit. And when you look at this, people smoke, when my father quit smoking, he didn't move, but he went on a six week trip to Micronesia as a lawyer. He went on this long business trip. 
And he said, it was just, you're so overwhelmed. There's all these new things. You don't have any associations formed. It just, and then you kind of get through the thick of it. So one thing to do is like, if you have any kind of big change coming up, maybe say to yourself, okay, I'm going to use this as an opportunity. If I'm moving apartments or houses, if I'm going to change jobs, if there's going to be some major disruption, if I'm having a breakup or I have a new relationship, I mean, talking to people, a huge number of people quit smoking because of a new relationship. You know, it's like they're together with somebody who's like, you know what? I'm not going to be in a relationship with somebody who smokes. And they're like, you know what? I'm in this new relationship. Plus you have all the, all the excitement that goes with the new relationship, you know? And then it's like, well, even if the relationship doesn't work, doesn't work out. If you, if you quit smoking out of it, that's a, that's a plus. So that is a tough one. But so using some kind of major upheaval in your life can be a way to try to give yourself a running start. I love that. I mean, it has huge resonance too. You're right. It's like it, those moments of transition, it's yes. almost like the soil is getting moved around a little bit. So yep. we're, we're more malleable in a sense. And, and certainly that's valid, validated by all the data around, you know, habit and mm-hmm. triggers and routines and all those sorts yes. of things. Um, yeah. So yeah, I call that the strategy of the clean slate that whenever you have a clean slate, it's an opportunity. And so you should take advantage of it for your benefit and then also not allow the clean slate to wipe away mm-hmm. a good habit um, without you realizing it. Yeah. Cause a lot of times people are like, Oh, it's so weird. Like, you know, I did yoga like every day for three years and then I mysteriously quit. And you're like, I wonder if we dug into that a little bit, if we mm. could figure out what changed, you know, things don't happen just like for no reason. Usually. I mean, a lot of times it's you know, some clean slate has wiped away the triggers, the cues, every, something important in that habit chain was disrupted without the person even realizing it. And so they lost a habit when they didn't need to. Mm. And again, so much of this is coming back to what you said a moment ago, which is the importance of being awake at the wheel or paying yeah. attention. I mean, yeah. and and so much of, at least in my life, it's so tempting to to sleepwalk through life, yes. right? So comment a little bit about that phenomenon. No, I mean, I, I just I just think you're absolutely right. And it's it's just a constant struggle to just make sure that you're just paying attention to what's happening around you. And this is kind of funny. It's kind of paradoxical with habits because the benefit of habits is that you don't have to think about them. That's the whole point of habits is the brain is conserving its its precious resources. So it's like, well, you don't have to think about how to brush your teeth or how to drive a car, or whether to wear your seatbelt. Um, so you can think about something more important. So that's good. But the thing is, you've got to control the very habit that it's happening. So you sort of have to be mindful in order to be mindless because if you are consciously shaping your habits, then you're going to have a much better chance of having habits that work for you than if you just allow them to kind of spring up hither and thither, because maybe they'll be good and maybe they'll be bad. But so by consciously forming them, then you can, then you can let, then you can let them go to the, to the unconscious where they, um, you know, can just work their magic where they, things just happen automatically. You don't have to make decisions. You don't have to use willpower. You just, Stuff is just happening. You're running on, uh, you know, on cruise control. Um, but you have to be in control of that if you want to have the life that you want. So last question as we turn a corner. And thank you so much for your time here. And by the way, I should mention this before we get to the final question. For folks to find out more about you and, and get access and join <laughs> join the army of, <laughs> of uh, Rubenites, the best place is GretchenRuben.com. Yes. I'm assuming. And then they can find all other things, Gretchen, there. Is that right? Yeah. I post, you know, every day about my sort of adventures in pursuit of happiness and habits on my, on my site, GretchenRubin.com. And there's all kinds of downloads and then, 
I have a monthly newsletter and I have a book group for people who love to read and they want good reading suggestions. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest and Facebook, all that stuff. I'm everywhere. Um, yeah, but that's the best place, awesome. right? It's GretchenRubin.com. Okay. So la last question. And it connects specifically, uh, selfishly to me, uh, um, in the last year or so I've made the choice to make a hard line between my getting things done productivity list, uh, my omni focused app basically, and my, my habit list, like the things that I structure my day around. So I keep a running list of like seven or eight habits, things as pedestrian as like floss my teeth. Uh, drink 64 ounces of water, walk 10,000 steps, write a thousand words, you know, whatever my eight, my current eight are, but I keep them really just, I used to kind of blend those kinds of tasks with, you know, check email at 10 AM or whatever the, the regular to-do list. But for whatever reason, I've separated the two. And what I've discovered is by making my habit list, first class citizens and my productivity stuff, second class citizens, number one, my habits get done and I'm saying they're more important. It's kind of that old Stephen Covey important, but not urgent kind of quadrant yeah. kind of thing. And, yeah. and I, I'm focusing on that and I'm finding that, you know, I'm getting, I'm taking the cue from Jerry Seinfeld and keeping my streak alive and chain. You know, yeah. the chain alive. Right. As I do that, I'm also discovering there's big chunks of my productivity things that aren't getting done <laughs> so much for GTD. And on the one hand, I'm like, I guess I'm less productive than I used to be. But on the other hand, I feel tremendously more fulfilled as a human by making these other things more important. And I am surprised, too, that when I get back to my productivity list, a lot of those things got taken care of on their own. And and I don't I don't know. I'm not I'm not a researcher like you. I don't I don't know if I'm on to anything. I just kind of stumbled into this idea of creating this firewall between the two. But I'm wondering what kind of advice you'd give to someone like me who's doing this kind of an approach. Is this a good thing to do or am I just like uh, avoiding responsibility by not getting to my email? No, I mean, I think it's, I think it's great to experiment and to try different things and see what works for you. Because I think, you know, some people are very attracted to list making and that's very satisfying for them. Some people not so much. And uh, but if it works for you, then that's great. I mean, I wouldn't have occurred to me to separate them in that way. But now that you say it, it's a very interesting thing to think about. Let me just make one comment uh, that this sort of reminds me of that might be relevant to your to your audience, which is there is this tiny group of people and it is like numerically the smallest group because I have this framework where I divide sort of the whole world into four categories. And I would just say there is a small category of people who really, really resist habits they do not want to feel compelled to do anything. They don't want to ask. They don't want to do what anybody asks them to do, even what they ask themselves to do. They don't want to lock themselves in. And so if you were a person like that, um, it, it's, it's easy to feel surrounded by people who are like, make a list and, and, and mm. check it off and make the chain and commit now and no decision and everything like that. But these people, I call them rebels because they resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. Um, they really want to choose every single time. Now, to someone like me, I'm like, that's a, that's a lot of energy being, being done that way. Mm. But if you are a person where all this stuff, like talk about habits makes you sick to your stomach and the idea of committing to something every day sounds awful, um, embrace that and just every day choose. And you may choose to exercise every day. Every morning, you choose again. And I just throw that out there because I do feel like this is a very small group of people. And so they're sort of rarely acknowledged. They're often noticed because they are very, they are very conspicuous. But their point of view is often not taken into account. And so 
if that's you, embrace that and run with it. And then for other people, you know, things like lists, making chains, deciding then not deciding um, are all things that can be very effective. This was episode 022 of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. FastTrackCreative.com is our home where you'll find past episodes, our Better Together creativity community, and a ton of other resources for artists looking to make a difference with their creations. Music today provided by Triple Scoop Music, sound as good as you look. Thanks to Anna Quaza at acreative.co for her audio production. And a special thanks to Gretchen for being with us. Visit her at GretchenRubin.com. As usual, I want to thank you for spreading the word about the show. When you leave questions and comments on the site and rate us on places like iTunes, we recognize you caring enough to do that sort of thing is a really big deal, and we're grateful. That's it for now. I'm Dean Sanders. I'll see you here next time.